Hello, and welcome to Beach House 34, the show that dives deep into true crime cases, revealing the truths behind crimes that reveal shocking secrets. Stories sure to make you just a little more paranoid, and maybe even lose sleep. Here's your host, Christine Wirth. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. I'm your host, Christine, and today we're going to unpack a case that is incredibly unsettling. And as such, I really, really, really need to give a content warning about this. Today's episode actually discusses some events that include harm to someone under 13 and the perpetrators are under the age of 18. This may be disturbing uh, for some listeners and as such, listener discretion is strongly advised. This episode um, is really, really hard to wrap your head around, to be honest. And it sounds like fiction, but unfortunately, it is terrifyingly true. Today, what you're going to hear about is the heartbreaking death of a 12-year-old girl named Shanda Scherer and her terrifying ordeal one cold January night in 1992 when a group of young girls visited her dad's house and encouraged her to meet up with her girlfriend. So let's set the scene. To begin, let's all do something together. Think back to how you may have felt when you were back in junior high. I know it's not a comfortable feeling, but just think about this for a minute. You worried about what you were going to wear that day, uh, what your hair looked like, how you were going to style it, You were worried sick that you had a math test first period and it was going to suck because you totally forgot to study for it. You weren't even sure if your best friend was going to talk to you because you guys had a stupid argument over the weekend. And because of this, you're already worried about where the heck you're going to sit at lunch. You really hoped when you got to school that you didn't hear about some great sleepover that happened over the weekend that, again, you weren't invited to and just hoped that whatever new rumor was started today wouldn't be about you. On top of all of this, there was always that group of girls that went out of their way to make your life miserable. And so what you did is you did whatever you could to stay out of their way. So now that you're in that same frame of mind, as shitty as it might feel, this is where we find Shonda stuck in a brand new junior high school with no friends and just 12 years old. The year was 1992 and social media was years away from making its debut, but that didn't mean that there weren't secret conversations, that there weren't rumors, that there wasn't bullying. It just happened to happen in a different way. In the case of Shonda, her mom had just gotten remarried for the second time. And this marriage 
took Shonda and her mom to New Albany, Indiana, where Shonda began to attend Hazelwood Middle School. It's never easy starting a new school, especially in junior high, but it wasn't long before a girl named Amanda started paying attention to Shonda. The problem was Amanda already had a girlfriend, Melinda. Now, Melinda would catch Amanda staring at Shonda whenever they were together, and Melinda wasn't happy about it. So Melinda, who was 15, started to make fun of 12-year-old Shonda. Melinda made sure that she did it in full view of the lunchroom, especially, so that everyone would hear her. She'd pick on her, and she would call her names like ugly girl. One day, while Amanda was walking between classes, she came across her cousin, Nathan, having a fight with Shonda in the hallway. Amanda wanted to defend her cousin, so she jumped in and had Shonda on the ground, raising her fist to hit Shonda when Shonda swung back at her and missed. There was hair pulling and some punches were thrown, but it wasn't long before adults showed up and both Amanda and Shonda received one week of in-school suspension. While Amanda and Shonda were in their in-school suspension, Amanda, who was 14, passed Shonda a note. And this note said that she didn't want Shonda to think that she was a bad person and that she hated fighting. Quote, it's just when I had you on the ground getting ready to hit you, I couldn't because you looked so helpless down there. But then you swung at me, so I started hitting and you started pulling my hair. This note, believe it or not, kicked off a brand new friendship. Melinda, however, and remember she is Amanda's girlfriend, was mad that both Amanda and Shonda were now spending so much time together. It didn't matter that the reason for them spending time together was because they had been fighting one another. Melinda just hated the fact that the same girl that Amanda had been staring at and was brand new to school was now in a place where the two of them could communicate and Melinda wasn't a part of it, which made her pretty mad. But instead of just dealing with it, Melinda decided that she needed to get herself placed into in-school suspension as well. So she purposefully made herself tardy so that she'd get the same punishment. It worked. But no matter what Melinda did to stop Amanda and Shonda from talking to each other and becoming friends, it didn't work. Amanda and Shonda would write notes back and forth, and Amanda eventually gave Shonda her phone number and told her to call her anytime. And Shonda did, many times. Now, Shonda's mom after she had met Amanda for the first time, didn't approve. Uh, she actually said, quote, she looked like a boy, but knew that Shonda didn't have many new friends at the school, so her mom just let it go. Their friendship continued to grow, and Shonda would tell Amanda to just, hey, just go ahead and leave notes in my locker because I don't have a locker partner, so no one else is going to be able to read them. Melinda, however is getting more and more pissed off. Not quite knowing what to do, Melinda then decides to write Shonda as well. And in this note, 
Melinda said that she also wanted to be Shonda's friend, but she didn't like it when Shonda talked to Amanda whenever Melinda wasn't around. She told Shonda that she and Amanda were going together and that they loved each other and it was just something that Shonda had to accept. Melinda offered to listen to Shonda about any problems that she had, but told her to stop sneaking behind her back. She then ended the note telling Shonda to go find a boyfriend because Amanda was hers. Amanda, in the meantime, continues to write to Shonda and tells her to not let Melinda bother her. Now, this, these conversations or these notes have been going on for quite some time. And Amanda, in one of these notes, mentions that about some plans that she and Shonda have coming up. And in this one particular note, Amanda says to her, quote, she had a lot in store Friday or Saturday, something you've been talking about for a while now. Do you know what I mean? Unquote. Now, Shonda did write back to Amanda, but she wasn't 100% sure what Amanda had in mind. In Shonda's note back to Amanda, Shonda did say she'd flirt, but then said, quote, will I have sex or make love with you? That's a big question for such a little girl. Can you back up your word? Unquote. This love triangle between Melinda, Amanda, and Shonda was definitely starting to hit a pressure point. Melinda discovered that Amanda was writing Shonda's name all over her folder. And you know how big of a deal of a deal this is in, in junior high. Melinda would then write to Amanda. And Amanda, at the same time, is trying to talk with both Melinda and Shonda and make them both happy. So there's a lot going on here, and this this triangle is just getting to be a little confusing. Now, eventually, Amanda and Melinda start to grow apart, but Melinda just refused to let it go. Amanda then began to spend the night at Shonda's house, and when Melinda found out that Amanda was staying overnight with Shonda, Melinda had a friend of hers drive her to Shonda's house where Melinda then jumped out of the car and confronted them as the two were heading inside. After she'd been gone for a while, talking to the two of them, she got back into the car and she told the friend that they all said that they just remained friends. Now in October, there was a school dance and Melinda tried to head off whatever she thought was going to happen by writing to Shonda and asking her if she was going to go to this dance or not. And Melinda kind of, you know, brushing it off, acting like a friend, said, hey, she wasn't going to go. She was probably just going to head to the mall and watch a lame movie. But in the meantime, Melinda is also turning around and writing Amanda, asking her to the dance and telling her she doesn't want her to go without her. Melinda did not get what she wanted. Shonda and Amanda did go to the dance together, but as they were leaving, Melinda was waiting for them outside. Melinda rushed in, slapped Amanda across the face, and then chased Shonda around the parking lot, threatening her. The next day at school, Melinda, she's, you know, crying. She's just tears streaming down her face, runs up to Amanda and hugs her and apologizes to her for slapping her 
when she tried to give Amanda a hug, it wasn't reciprocated. Melinda knew that Amanda only cared about Shonda at this point, and Melinda was pissed because now, according to Melinda, Shonda had even started to quote-unquote copy her look. It bothered Melinda so much that during school, there would often be fights between Melinda and Shonda just over how Shonda was dressing. Later in October, there was yet another school festival, but this one was called the Harvest Homecoming, and Amanda and Shonda again attended. Now, this time they went with Shonda's dad and her stepmom. Because the event had homecoming in the title, Melinda knew that it was all but over with Amanda, but she still hadn't accepted it. She felt that her girlfriend was sneaking around behind her back. Now, Melinda actually didn't know for sure if Amanda and Shonda had in fact gone to Harvest Homecoming, but all she knew is that she didn't go with Amanda. So Melinda decided to run to another friend and spill all the information about how Amanda and Shonda were now dating and how Melinda was furious. Her friend... And rightly so, her friend said, Shonda's just a kid, leave it be. She further said that it wasn't Shonda's fault, if anything, she should be mad at Amanda. Melinda then manipulated the same friend to call Shonda's house and find out if Amanda and Shonda had gone to Harvest Homecoming together. Shonda, in this telephone conversation, said that they did. And when her friend hung up, Melinda told her friend that she wanted to beat up Shonda and she wanted to kill her. Melinda then called Amanda to see if Amanda would fess up to going to the festival with Shonda, but Amanda denied it. Now, it wasn't long after this that Melinda began to threaten Shonda in public, and she even told others that she wanted to kill her. Melinda didn't obviously like the common sense approach and it just didn't make sense to her for some reason that she should be mad at Amanda and not Shonda. She just felt that she had to get Shonda out of the picture and that would be the one way that would just would guarantee their relationship. So what she did is she called another friend, Crystal. Now, Crystal just shook it off as Melinda being mad. But again, Melinda just would not let it go. After Melinda went into her whole tirade about Shonda, Crystal ended up getting convinced that Shonda did in fact have to go. According to the book, Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones, Crystal finally said, quote, she tried and tried and tried to get this girl to stay away from Amanda and Shonda wouldn't do it. And Melinda couldn't take it no more. When Melinda started telling how much she hated Shonda and what Shonda was doing to her, I said, I'm tired of this, Melinda, this shit. Fuck people, fuck everybody. I'm tired of people's shit and I'm tired of putting up with it. Fucking kill the fucking bitch. She fucking deserves to die. She shouldn't be messing around with your girlfriend anyways. You done told her once, twice, three times is too many. Now go do something to get her to stop. When Melinda's 16th birthday came around and she didn't hear a word from Amanda, which was unusual, she wrote to her saying that she wanted to talk, 
but Amanda never responded. Now, Shonda's mom, in the meantime, had discovered a letter from Amanda to Shonda in Shonda's room and started to become a little worried. Shonda had never told her mom about how how far the relationship between her and Amanda had gone, just that Amanda needed a friend. It wasn't long after her mom discovered this note that Shonda was transferred to another school. She was transferred to Our Lady of Perpetual Help in New Albany. Now, the contact between Amanda and Shonda didn't end. However, as a side note, we all know that as teenagers, our view of the world is sketchy at best. And when it comes to relationships, hormones, jealousy, uh, and rage, they're just all part of how some might react. But for Melinda, it was different, way different. She just didn't want to bully Shonda, although she did, nor did she just want to beat her up. She wanted to actually kill her, a 12-year-old girl. But to Melinda, she wasn't just a 12-year-old girl. She was a rival and had to be taken out of the picture. So let's take a look at Melinda's story. To say that Melinda had grown up in a chaotic and abusive household is an extreme understatement. Melinda's parents had gotten married when her mom, Marjorie, uh, known as Margie, was 16 and still a junior in high school. And her dad, Larry, was 20. Even after they were married, Margie continued to attend high school. And now, just months after the two were married, she found out that her husband was following her to school, even in the hallways, and accusing her of talking with other boys. His constant stalking and threats got to be way too much for her. So she ended up quitting high school before she graduated, and it dashed all of her dreams of becoming a nurse. Larry later got drafted and entered the army where he was then sent off to Vietnam. Now, when he returned, he wasn't the same person. He would be out all night and Margie would find him lying in their bed with nothing but her underwear on. He wanted sex all the time and didn't care what child was in the room. Even though Larry worked, he would have his wife go to his parents asking for money. It's not that they didn't have enough, but Larry used his money to buy himself things like motorcycles and guns. At one point, uh, Margie's sister, who was 13 at the time, had come over to stay with Margie and Larry, and that evening ended up being sexually molested by Larry. Larry's first job when he got out of Vietnam or got back from Vietnam was for the Southern Railway in Louisville, and he would hang around bars in the area. He started to take his wife out with him to these singles bars, but would introduce her as his girlfriend and make her dress provocatively before they went there. He'd lie to people at the bar and tell them that he was a doctor or a dentist. He then convinced his wife to go home with other couples where they would switch partners, also known as swinging. Margie found the whole thing disgusting. Larry would later then bring home friends from bars after he got off work at the railway and force Margie to have sex with them, which became a frequent thing. 
At one time at their home, they had an orgy. And during this time, Marjorie attempted suicide. She would attempt suicide several more times over the years while the girls were young. Now, it wasn't long before Larry was laid off from the railway, but, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, but this is true. He ended up getting a job with the new Albany Police Department. And after training, he was legally able to carry a gun anywhere he wanted. So Margie, one day, she made the mistake of waving at an African-American man who happened to be driving by in a car and whom she recognized from high school. This sent Larry into a jealous rage, believing that she had slept with this guy. So Larry called his partner and together they hunted down this man and put him in the hospital. They were both suspended from the police force after only being with them for a few months. Later, Larry then worked for the postal service as a mail carrier, but constantly complained about the work. Margie would notice Larry bringing the bags inside the house and going through all of the mail, eventually burning most of it. Now, Melinda's mom, Margie, she did work off and on. And while both parents were working, you know, things were okay financially. But as I've said, Larry rarely shared his income with the rest of the family. Family members described their whole entire family as dysfunctional. And they would talk about how Larry and Margie's kids, with Melinda being the youngest of three girls, would often come to their homes hungry. After years of abuse, Margie had had it and decided to do just whatever she wanted to do. She then found other men to have relations with and refused any advances by Larry. She would even come home and tell Larry about all the guys that she had been with. So one night she came home or he came home drunk. He grabbed Margie and he raped her in the bathroom while all the girls listened. One night he said to Margie, he's like, hey, let's go out for dinner and a movie. But instead, when they both got in the car and took off, they ended up at a dive bar where again, Larry did the whole dentist performance. Larry then decided to leave with two women he had met at the bar when Margie confronted him, telling him to take her home. So Larry agreed, pushed her into their car, and drove off. Margie then received a fist to the face repeatedly. And as they were driving, Larry opened up her car door and pushed her out onto the road. She was taken to a hospital where she received stitches in her mouth, and because of her bruising, she was admitted for treatment. Pictures were taken, and it was recommended that Margie press charges. Larry, though, took himself into the police station and told the police what he had done. He was arrested and then subsequently released on a pretty small bond. It's unclear exactly how bad the abuse towards the kids was at home. According to some court testimonies, um, it says that Larry had fondled his daughter, Melinda, when she was just an infant, that he had, as we've already heard, molested his wife's 13-year-old sister very early on in the marriage and had also molested Melinda's female cousin, Teddy, from the age of 10 to the age of 14. 
in the account with Teddy, Larry would take her into the woods and do things to her there. Teddy was the one who did testify in court and said that in one instance, Larry had tied all three of his daughters, Melinda and her two sisters, and raped them in succession. At the time, according to Teddy, Melinda was three or four years old. Melinda's two older sisters said he molested them, but Melinda never admitted that this is what had happened to her. When Melinda was five, the family was actually very involved, believe it or not, in the Graceland Baptist Church. The church. Both uh, Larry and Margie ended up giving full confessions and renounced drinking, and they renounced swinging, you know, having sex with other couples while they were members. Larry then became a Baptist lay preacher. And this is essentially a preacher who was not ordained. And Margie became a school nurse. So at least Margie got a little bit of what she wanted, even though she had to quit high school, right? This church, this Graceland Baptist church was huge on exorcisms. And they believed that an exorcism was in order for Melinda. Now, Melinda at the time was five. Melinda was then taken to a motel room where a 50-year-old man for five hours performed an exorcism. It's unknown exactly what that exorcism entailed. After about a year or so, someone at the church thought that it would be a great idea to have Larry counsel others, as in marriage counseling. It just blows my mind as to why, why, why would they think this? The women he would counsel eventually told Margie that Larry had been, quote, dropping in on them, and one of them had even accused Larry of rape. Larry started to become bitter about his church pay, uh, didn't like the way that the church was spending money, so one day he stood up in church, said all of this, tore up his membership card, and as of that moment, the family was excommunicated from the church and they resumed living as they had before. In November of 1990, when Melinda was 15, her dad was caught spying on her and a friend while they were taking a shower. When Marjorie found out, she attacked Larry with a knife, and he was hospitalized after he tried to grab the knife. Again, Margie attempted suicide by swallowing a a bottle of Larry's tranquilizers. And it was her daughters who had to call 911 in this instance. After this happened, Larry filed for divorce and moved to Florida where he remarried. Uh, For some reason, Melinda was crushed. For a while, Larry did send her letters, but eventually stopped doing that. And then in December of 1998, he died. So I want to head back to the real reason that we're here. And that's for Shauna and her story. And while I don't believe that Melinda's background is any excuse for her behavior, it's definitely what the courts refer to as a mitigating factor when it comes to sentencing someone. And we'll find out a little bit more about this later on. I also want to point out that while what you've heard about Larry so far is sickening, this isn't even a morsel of what he had done to his wife and to his girls. To get the full picture, I highly suggest, if you want to, I don't know, maybe you don't want the whole picture, but everything is 
involved or included in the book Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones. And I will have a link in the show notes. So let's get back to Shonda's story. By now, Shonda, she's at a different school, but her and Amanda still keep in touch. Now, you would think that Melinda would be happy, right? Shonda wasn't in school any longer, and she essentially had Amanda all to herself. However, Melinda's rage against Shonda just continued. Melinda still wanted to make good on her threats. So the night of January 10th of 1992, Melinda gathered a group of friends. And these friends were Tony Lawrence, who was 15, Hope Rippey, who was also 15, Lori Tackett, who was 17 and the only one with the car. And all three of these girls headed over to Melinda's house. When they got there, they all went inside and borrowed some clothes from Melinda. And while inside the house, Melinda explained to all of them that she hated Shonda because Shonda had begun dressing like her, doing her hair like her, and that Shonda had stolen her girlfriend. Melinda then showed all of them a knife and told them that she was just going to scare Shonda with it. At the time, Shonda was staying with her dad in Jeffersonsville, only about eight miles away from New Albany. And the plan was to go to Shonda's house and try and get her to come with them using the lie that Amanda was waiting for her. Hope drove, and along the way, they had to stop and ask for directions. They weren't exactly sure where they were going. And just before dark, they arrived. Melinda told Hope and Tony to go up to the door and tell Shonda that they were friends of Amanda's and that Amanda wanted to meet her at a place called the Witch's Castle. Now, I know this sounds creepy, but again, this is just a teenager thing. In truth, this place was nothing more than an old stone house that had fallen into ruin, but it was isolated and had been given a local reputation that it used to be a house where nine witches lived. And the reason it was the way that it was was because the people had burnt it down in order to get rid of the witches. So that's the story. And that's why they call it the witch's castle. Now, Hope and Tony, they had never met Shonda. So they go up to the door, knock on the door. And even though Shonda was the one who answered the door, they asked if Shonda was there. Now, Shonda's dad and her stepmom were within hearing distance and they thought that it was weird that someone would come to the door asking for Shonda when Shonda was standing right in front of them. My guess is that when they got to the door and she opened the door, they probably weren't thinking that the girl they were looking for was a young 12 year old girl. Now, after Shonda heard their explanation about Amanda waiting for her, Shonda then stepped outside and told them to come back later after midnight when her dad was asleep. When Hope and Tony went back to the car and they didn't have Shonda with them, Melinda was furious, uh, but then they told her that Shonda wanted them to come back later. So what they did to pass the time, they went to the Audubon Skate Park, which wasn't too far away. There happened to be a punk rock show happening there. Tony and Hope, they got bored at the concert and went back to the car after meeting a couple of guys. When it finally became late enough, the four girls left and went back to Shonda's. During the ride, Melinda kept saying that she couldn't wait to kill her, but then said she was only going to use the knife to scare Shonda. 
They arrived at Shonda's house around 1230, and Tony didn't want to go to the door to get her, so instead Lori and Hope went. After they got out of the car to get Shonda, Melinda then hid under a blanket in the back seat because she knew that if Shonda saw her, she wouldn't get into the car. Hope told Shonda again that Amanda was waiting for her at the witch's castle. Now, at first, Shonda didn't want to go, but eventually she did agree and she went inside to change her clothes. With Shonda now in the car, Hope began to ask Shonda about her relationship with Amanda. When Shonda started telling them about her and Amanda's relationship, Melinda then popped out from the back seat and put the knife to Shonda's throat, questioning her about the sexual relationship between her and Amanda. Shonda was terrified and began to sob, asking Melinda not to hurt her. The five of them continued to drive towards the witch's castle. Shonda, scared and sobbing, when they got to the witch's castle, she was taken from the car and her arms and legs were tied with rope. Melinda told Shonda that she had pretty hair and wondered how pretty it would look if it were all cut off. Melinda then took off Shonda's rings and handed one to each of the girls. Hope had taken off Shonda's Mickey Mouse watch and pressed the button to hear the music over and over. I mean, doesn't that just kind of put it in perspective? You know, here you're kidnapping this girl and she's wearing a Mickey Mouse watch. Lori then piped up and she wanted in on the fun. So she told Shonda that the castle was filled with the bones of people down a well and that Shonda was going to be next. Lori then went to the car, grabbed a shirt and held it up in the air, took a lighter and set it on fire. Now, a few cars had gone by on the road and the group started to get concerned that these cars or these passengers would see the fire and that they would get in trouble for being on private property. So they decided to leave. They shoved Shonda back into the car where she begged, begged to be taken back home. Lori told them about a place near her house that was isolated. So they drove there. When they got to the location, everyone but Tony and Hope got out of the car. Tony, it should be noted, hugged Shonda and apologized. Shonda begged Tony to tell them not to hurt her. And when Tony asked Melinda to take Shonda back home, Melinda yelled at her to shut up. Melinda and Lori made Shonda strip down to her underwear. And then Melinda beat Shonda with her fists. After punching her in the stomach, Shonda bent over and, at the encouragement of Lori, Melinda then took her knee and slammed it into Shonda's face. Shonda had only recently gotten braces, so the assault was doubly devastating. Shonda, who is now bleeding profusely from her mouth, was then held from behind by Melinda, who then tried to cut her throat with the knife, but the knife was too dull. Hope then got out of the car and helped to hold Shonda down. Both Melinda and Lori, quote, took turns stabbing Shonda in the chest. Then they wrapped rope around Shonda's neck and they each pulled one end tight until Shonda was unconscious. Believing that she was dead, they put her in the trunk of the car. When Hope asked if she was dead and Melinda told her she was, Hope, who was now the one who was driving, went into hysterics. 
and in a panic, drove the car from their location. They ended up at Lori's house and they all went inside for some sodas and to clean themselves up. In the meantime, Shonda is still in the trunk of the car and they all believe that she's dead. But yet they all go to Lori's house and say, oh, hey, let's sit around, have something to drink. But then Lori's dog, who was outside, had begun to bark. And they realized that they could hear Shonda screaming from inside the trunk. Lori told the other girls, hey, don't worry about it. She grabbed a paring knife and headed outside. While outside, Lori opened the trunk and stabbed Shonda several times. After she came back inside, she washed off the blood and then pulled out her set of runestones. Now, runestones are a method of fortune-telling, a lot like uh, tarot cards. According to Lori and her runestones, they were all going to be okay. It wasn't an issue. Tony and Hope didn't want anything more to do with what was going on. They were tired. They wanted to just go to sleep, hoping it was just a nightmare. So they stayed at Lori's house while Melinda and Lori took off again with Shonda in the trunk. Along the way, Shonda is still kicking and screaming in the trunk of this car. Lori stopped, frustrated with hearing Shonda. She got out and opened the trunk. Now, surprisingly, Shonda sat straight up. She was covered in blood. And while she could scream, it didn't appear as though she could really speak coherently. But she did utter at least one word. And this will break your heart. But this one word was mommy. Shonda's eyes rolled to the back of her head. Lori then picked up a tire iron and hit Shonda repeatedly until she was quiet. Lori was so proud of herself, she claimed to have heard Shonda's head cave in. There are also reports of Shonda being sexually assaulted with the same tire iron. Along the drive, they actually stopped the car several times to beat Shonda with the tire iron. As they drove along, they talked about what should be done with Shonda. And this is when the topic of burning her came up. Just before it got light outside, the two of them, Lori and Melinda, drive back to Lori's house to clean up again. Hope asked about Shonda and Lori, laughing, described the torture. The girls were loud enough that they woke up Lori's mom, who ended up yelling at Lori for being out so late and bringing the girls with her. Lori said she'd take them home. And then what she did is after they all got into the car, Lori then drove to an isolated burn pile and then opened the trunk to look at Shonda. Tony refused. Now, Hope, she's in the back. She's looking at the trunk at Shonda within the trunk and noticed a bottle of Windex in there. She picks up this bottle and sprayed Shonda's wounds with it, saying, you're not looking so hot now, are you? While they had discussed burning Shonda, this time it was decided that, yes, hey, this is what we're going to do. So all the girls then drove to another gas station near Madison Consolidated High School and put some gas in the car. What they did is they then purchased a two-liter bottle of Pepsi. They dumped it out and refilled it with gas. Back on the road, they drove to a spot called Lemon Road, which is off U.S. Route 421. Hope was aware of the location. Tony stayed in the car 
while Lori and Hope wrapped up Shonda, who was amazingly still alive. Although who knew what her brain function was at this point in time. They wrapped her in a blanket and carried her into an open field by the gravel road. Lori made Hope pour gas on Shonda and then set her on fire. They then left, but at the end of the road, Melinda wasn't quite sure that Shonda was dead, so they went back and poured the rest of the gas on her. Around 9.30 in the morning, they all went to McDonald's to have breakfast, where they laughed <laughs> about how Shonda looked just like one of the sausages that they were eating. Tony then called a friend and told her about what had just happened. Uh, Lori then took all the girls and dropped off Tony and Hope at their homes and then went back to her place with Melinda. So now Lori and Melinda are back at Lori's house. Melinda then called Amanda and told her what they had done. She then further said that she would pick up Amanda later on. In the meantime, a friend of Melinda's, Crystal, came over and her and Lori told Crystal what they had done and what had happened. They then went and picked up Amanda, as they said that they would, and they all went back to Melinda's house where they then repeated the story. Now, both Amanda and Crystal, they just thought it was a joke until Lori took them out to the car and showed them the trunk where Shonda's bloody handprints were on the inside of the trunk lid and Shonda's socks were still in the trunk. Amanda was horrified and asked to be taken home. When they got to Amanda's house, Melinda kissed her and told her she loved her and begged her not to tell anyone. Before Amanda went inside, she promised she wouldn't say anything. Shonda's dad woke up early and noticed that Shonda wasn't in the house. Uh, he and his wife, they called friends and neighbors all morning. He then called Shonda's mom at 1.45 in the afternoon. And after getting together, they all went and filed a missing person report with the Clark County Sheriff. Also that same morning, and ironically, about an hour into the time that the girls are sitting there having breakfast at McDonald's, two brothers were heading out hunting when they drove by the same field where the girls had left Shonda. They weren't exactly sure what they were looking at. Uh, they thought it was a mannequin, but when they got out of the car and they approached, they realized it was a body. The police were called at 10.55 a.m., and the brothers were asked to come back and join the, the police at the location. Trooper David Cam and Jefferson County Sheriff Buck Shipley and detectives began an investigation, collecting evidence at the scene. They originally thought that this was just a drug deal gone wrong and didn't believe that it was something that was local. Her body was posed in a suggestive position, meaning that it was done on purpose and with intention. The victim's face and her hands were burnt in an attempt to keep her unrecognizable and unidentifiable. She was also found in the what's called the pugilistic stance with her arms outstretched and clenched fists. And this is typical of a victim who has died by burning. That night, about 8.20 p.m., Tony and Hope, along with their parents, arrived at the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. Both of them gave statements to the police 
but they were hard to decipher because they were both so upset. But what the police did learn is that the victim that they were both speaking about was Shonda and Tony and Hope named two other girls that were involved. They did their best that they could to describe what had happened the night before. And after an inter-county investigation, Shipley contacted the Clark County Sheriff, and at that point, they were able to match the body to Shonda's missing person report. Now, the only way that they were able to positively identify Shonda's body was actually through dental records. Lori and Melinda were arrested on January 12th. Most of the evidence came from the statements given by Tony and Hope. It was immediately evident that the prosecution intended to try both Melinda and Lori as adults. Now, this is not to say that Tony and Hope were not also arrested. They were, eventually. And I will get to that and we'll talk about their sentences. But as I had mentioned before about the fact of mitigating factors in courts, um, it was discovered that all four of them, all four girls, had mitigating factors which essentially means that it might lessen their responsibility. And this is usually introduced into a case uh, when even though someone might be guilty of something, there were circumstances that make the action of what they did less severe than it initially seems. Which for me is hard to believe, but that's just what it says. So in the case of the girls, all four of them, had troubled backgrounds with claims of physical or sexual abuse committed by a parent or another adult. Lori, Tony, and Hope all had histories of self-harming behavior. Lori was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and suffering from hallucinations. Melinda, described as the ringleader, had the most extensive history of abuse and mental health issues, and we covered quite a bit of her background Uh, earlier. But here's some other stories about the girls that may have led to this decision by the court or not of mitigating factors. Lori Tackett grew up in a home where her mom was a fundamentalist Pentecostal Christian. And Lori claimed that she was molested at least twice as a child at age five and at age 12. In May of 1989, Lori's mom found out that Lori was changing from her dress into jeans when she got to school. And after a confrontation one night, Lori's mom tried to strangle her. Social workers got involved and Lori's parents agreed to unannounced visits to ensure that child abuse was not occurring. There was always tension there, though. Lori's mom learned that Lori's friend, Hope, her dad, had purchased a Ouija board for the girls. And so <laughs> I don't mean to laugh about this, but this is how serious they took it. Lori's mom, when she found out about this, went to Hope's house and demanded that the board be burnt and that the home of Hope be exercised. After Lori turned 15, she started to become uh, more and more rebellious. She also began to become fascinated with the occult. She would try to impress her friends by pretending to be possessed by the spirit of, quote, Deanna the vampire. Lori also began to self-harm, 
And this became more pronounced when she started dating a girl who was also self-harming. When Lori's parents found out what she was doing, they checked her into a hospital in 1991, and she was prescribed an antidepressant and then released. Two days later, with her girlfriend and Tony Lawrence, Lori cut her wrists uh, deeply enough that she had to go back to the hospital. And after treating her wound, she was admitted into the hospital's psych ward. And it was there that she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and confessed that she had experienced hallucinations since she was little. She was released about a month later and dropped out of high school in 1991. Hope's story is that her parents had divorced in 1984 and she moved with her mom and siblings to Quincy, Michigan for three years. She said during this time, it was somewhat turbulent. Um, don't exactly know what she means by that. Her parents got back together in 1987 and moved back to Indiana, where Hope was able to reunite with Lori and Tony, whom she'd known since she was little. Now, Hope's parents thought Lori was a bad influence. And as with other girls, Hope also began to self-harm. Tony had been close friends with Hope since childhood. Tony had been abused by a relative at age nine and was raped by a teenage boy at age 14. Police just told the boy to stay away from Tony and she was supposed to enter counseling, but uh, didn't go. She became promiscuous, began to self-harm and attempted suicide in eighth grade. Even with all of these mitigating circumstances, what happened to Shonda was horrific and it, just horrific. And it made national news. And the judge was not forgiving when it came time for sentencing. Both Lori Tackett and Melinda Loveless were each sentenced to 60 years in the Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis. Lori was released on January 11th of 2018 after she had spent 25 years in prison. Ironically, this was the 26th anniversary of Shonda's death. And Lori then served probation for one year. Melinda was also released and she was released about a year later in September of 2019 after spending 26 years in prison. Hope Rippey was sentenced to 60 years with 10 of those suspended for mitigating circumstances, plus 10 years of medium supervision probation. On appeal, a judge reduced the sentence to 35 years. In exchange for her cooperation, Tony was allowed to plead guilty to one count of criminal confinement and was sentenced to a maximum of 20 years. Hope was released from Indiana Women's Prison on parole after serving 14 years, and she remained on supervised parole for five years until April of 2011. And last but not least, Tony. Tony was released on December 14th of 2000 after serving nine years. She remained on parole until December of 2002. Shonda's dad, Stephen, died of alcoholism in 2005 when he was 53. A later interview with Shonda's mom, Jackie, has her saying that Stephen was so destroyed by his daughter's murder that he, quote, did everything he could to kill himself 
besides putting a gun to his head, and drank himself to death. The man definitely died from a broken heart. In 2012, Shonda's mom, Jackie, made contact with Melinda Loveless, kind of. She donated a dog named Angel in Shonda's name to Melinda to train for the Indiana Canine Assistance Network Program, ICANN, through Project To Heal. And what this does is it provides service pets to people with disabilities. Now, Melinda had trained dogs for the program for several years. Jackie said that she had endured criticism over the decision, but defended it by saying, quote, it's my choice to make. Shonda is my child. If you don't let good things come from bad things, nothing gets better. And I know what my child would want. My child would want this. As I wrap this up, it's hard for me to even try to gain any kind of insight into this. Shonda didn't deserve any, any of what she received. She was 12 years old. 12. Melinda, obviously, had control issues, and Lori was just outright sadistic. Tony and Hope, although they seemed to have some kind of moral issue with what was happening, never stepped up to help. Although they did end up going to the police later, but this is after the fact. It didn't help Shauna in that moment. This whole story to me is sickening. And even though this happened years ago, I can't tell you how pissed it makes me. I can't help but think that someone along the way knew how bad this was going to get, but never had the guts to step in. If they had, Chanda may still be alive today. And wow, yeah, that was a tough one. It took me forever to gather the information on this mainly because I kept putting it off because of the content. I even considered trashing it a couple of times, but felt it was important to put Shonda's story out there. Sadly, what you've heard is only an overview. I know, sounds crazy, doesn't it? I highly suggest that if you, if you want all of the details, um, including court testimony, that you read or listen to the book Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones. And again, I'll have the link for it in the show notes. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you. You know I do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for hanging in there. And we will speak next time, my friends. Thank you. <laughs>